The Gut Pharmacist Podcast with Riley Ramosco, traditional naturopath and holistic nutritionist. Welcome to the Gut Pharmacist Podcast. We have a very special guest, one of my favorites today, Dr. Bill Rawls, who is an integrative practitioner who practices with herbal medicine, and he is a chronic illness expert. Thank you so much for being on my show, Dr. Rawls. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Love it. So tell us quickly about your background, your health journey with Lyme disease and chronic illness, and how did you get into herbal medicine? Yeah, it, it none of it was planned, right? None of it was planned. And and really, despite being a doctor, I think I spent the first half or at least the first third of my life basically ignoring health habits and ignoring things that were really obvious. You know, I graduated from medical school and went into the practice of obstetrics and gynecology. Um, because it dealt with a well population, uh, the interventions really did help people. And, you know, delivering a baby was just really fun. But at that point in time, it came with this rigorous call that I was on hospital call every second to third day, along with running a busy office schedule and every second to third weekend. So I spent a lot of time on call and call generally often meant that you didn't get any sleep or marginal sleep over a 24-hour period. But back in the 80s and 90s, people were questioning the value of sleep. It's like, why do we have to waste all, all this time sleeping? Can't we just condense that into four hours, get it done, and you know, and move on with it and, and you know, do do more stuff in life. Right. And I kind of bought into that. So even when I wasn't on call, I wasn't allowing time for sleep. And you know, life was stressful. It was busy, uh, community, family, office. Um, and so by my late 40s, it was catching up with me and basically my health crashed completely. And when I mean crashed, I mean everything. I developed really significant heart symptoms, neurological symptoms. I was wondering whether I had early stages of Parkinson's or MS bad gut issues and my joints were falling apart. I mean, literally, I was falling apart. But I wasn't sick enough to get a diagnosis. You know, the labs that I worked with, and so many people go through this, the labs weren't quite bad enough to define a specific diagnosis. So I settled for fibromyalgia, like a lot of people do. And nobody wants that diagnosis because it doesn't mean anything. It just means you're going to get therapy for symptoms. Exactly. So I ended up, um, uh, you know, I, like so many people with fibromyalgia, it's like, you know, I've been bitten by ticks. I know if I can get that diagnosis of Lyme disease, then I've got something that's treatable. So I worked really hard and many tests were negative, but I finally got a positive test and it was like, yeah, now I can treat this thing. But round after round of antibiotics made me sicker instead of better. And I eventually lost faith in the conventional medical system completely for treating chronic illness. Um, and eventually found herbal therapy, did uh, Stephen Booner's original protocol. This was back in 2005. And got my life back. Um, thought I was just killing the microbes. But gradually everything got better. Well, that's been more than a decade ago. I'm 65. Everything in my life is great. Not only did all the symptoms go away over a three to five year period, a lot of things that weren't related to that, like my blood pressure. You know, I had blood pressure issues my whole life. I'd had constipation and gut issues. I'd had all these problems. All that cleared up. And here at 65, my memory is better than when I was in my 40s. My joints are great. My heart, heart is fine. And I'm doing everything that I want to in life. And I've been doing herbal therapy steadily, completely for that whole time. So it's put me at a level of health and a potential for healing that is just unexpected. It surprises me every day. And uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's been a cool experience. So in a way, chronic Lyme disease made my life better. And 
now my job is sharing that message with as many people as will listen. I love that your story, not the medical school part, but just the the health journey is very similar to mine. We have the neurological symptoms in common or that you used to have. That's great news. So when we talk about Lyme disease and these microbes, there's a category of stealth microbes, stealth infections, stealth pathogens. What are those and what does that really mean? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was going through my journey, you know, there were stages of understanding. So I'm in a place now that I wasn't in five years ago or 10 years ago. I've continued to research why the herbs worked, what was going on. And it's really giving me a whole different understanding of what chronic illness is. A lot of it is microbe driven. And I'm I'm in the place that, you know, it doesn't matter which chronic illness you're looking at, cancer or anything. I think there's a microbe component there. So when we say stealth microbes, stealth pathogens, you hear that a lot. You it implies something that's sneaky, that's you know, getting in under the radar, hidden, we don't know about. Well, it turns out that virtually all the microbes that we're exposed to that could potentially do us harm that we interact with through our lifetimes have that potential. Um, So it's a lot of things that we don't expect. And it's the fact of the matter is that bacteria, viruses, protozoa, yeast are constantly trying to get through our defenses, get into our body And what they want is our cells. Our cells are basically offer food and resources. You know, everything, all living things need food and resources to survive, need food and water. It's the basics, you know, and bacteria need that too. So all the, all the microbes that we encounter that can do us harm are host dependent. They must have a host to survive. There are a lot of things that don't bother us. I mean, it's like, Every time you take a breath, you breathe in about a hundred different, about a thousand different kinds of viruses. Every breath. Yeah, it's crazy. But most of those don't interact with our cells, so they don't do anything to us. And it's like there are bacteria that live off of organic matter in in the soil. And they they don't really do a whole lot to us unless we get like um, tetanus in a wound or something like that. So they don't, they're not really using us as a host per se, but there are a lot of things that do. So all the bacteria that live in our gut, on our skin, um, are host dependent. You know, they need us to survive in different ways. All the bacteria that are carried by ticks uh, that can potentially harm us are host dependent. Uh, There are a lot of viruses. So we're exposed to things all through our lifetime. And many of those things go underneath the radar that we don't, we're not aware that they enter their body. And, you know, where, where I am today is all these things, virtually every infection that you've noticed, and then a lot of things that you haven't noticed, have the potential to become dormant in your tissues. And that's what we're talking about here as the foundation for why why microbes can make us chronically ill. And why are these microbes so overlooked, like Lyme and co-infections? Most doctors, they do a basic antibody test and maybe they put you on a round of antibiotics. There's a lot of misinformation. So why are these things so overlooked? Yeah, it's, uh, well, we've spent a lot of time over uh, the past hundred years looking at the big threats. You know, I mean, when you look at our conventional system, it's really built on acute intervention for the big bad threats. And especially so, you know, mid 20th century uh, was kind of the heyday of modern medicine because we were finding solutions to really bad microbes that were visible threats, you know, uh, we, you know, vaccines for smallpox and polio and, and all of those really terrible threats and antibiotics for some of the, the, the more common threats, 
uh, you know, drugs for uh, tuberculosis. So it's those big bad things that we notice, you know, I mean, it's kind of like Ebola. We know a lot more about Ebola virus, which really compared to Lyme disease is very uncommon, um, right. almost rare comparatively. We know a lot more about Ebola virus than we do the bacteria that cause Lyme disease, a lot more. So these are low-grade threats, and it's the difference in an acute infection with something and a chronic infection. So our infectious disease knowledge and, and approach is built on acute infections. Um, so an acute infection is when a bacteria, virus, protozoic yeast first enters the body. It's, it's that invasion that the bacteria or other microbe is crossing barriers. It's getting through the skin. It's getting through the intestinal lining. It's getting into the lungs. So what all these things want to do is get to the bloodstream. And for things that we don't have good immunity for that haven't been very common in nature, like Ebola or most recently like COVID or other SARS viruses, you know, those things make us sick and we pay a lot of attention to that. But low-grade threats, things that are more common, things that have been more common over time, it's like Ebola, Humans have never really been exposed to that, so we don't have built-in immunity to it. Ticks, ticks have been biting humans since the beginning of time. So we have immunity against most things that most ticks carry. So we have immunity against Borrelia, Bartonella, all of these things. These are low-grade pathogens, um, and in fact, you know, if we were able to, if we were able to get specimens, basically chop up all the people in New, New England, we're not going to do that, of course. Right. I think we would find out that a high percentage of people have Borrelia and many other tick-borne microbes in their tissues. And we probably find that regionally in most parts of the world, whatever ticks or other uh, insects are carrying, a lot of people would be carrying those things without being sick. So you can carry them. They can be in your body without you ever being sick. In fact, I'm finding that I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that acute Lyme disease, that people get very symptomatic after a tick bite, after they've been infected with Borrelia, it's probably pretty uncommon. 95% uh, of the people that I've spoken with over time that identify with chronic Lyme disease either do not remember a tick bite or do not remember becoming sick around the time of a tick bite. And what that tells you is the microbes entered your body, but they became dormant in your tissues. And it was later something tipped the balance. Like, uh, you know, pe people talk about a perfect storm that they had really bad mental stress or they're like a trauma, they ended up in the hospital, or sometimes another infection uh, that brings out these dormant microbes and these things reactivate. And that's when people become chronically ill. So there are other factors that contribute to that. So when you look at that potential, there are an awful lot of microbes and, it's, and, and we just don't have the testing ability to test for all of these things. So when I was, when I wrote my Unlocking Lyme book, we had recognized 12 species of Borrelia that could cause Lyme disease. That's up to 21 now. And who knows how many there actually are. And when you look at any given tick species, I remember I saw a, a report of one tick species carries 237 different families of bacteria, wow. many of which can cause illness in humans. So a tick bite is never an isolated bacteria. You're getting a flood of a bunch of different kinds of stuff. And what we're finding is no matter what you look at, co-infections are really common. Um, even COVID, you know, we when they started doing the research, they found that a lot of the people that were getting sick weren't getting just COVID. They were getting other respiratory viruses at the same time. So again, our ability to pick things up is limited. Um, 
right now. I mean, you know, it, we've gotten a lot better than we were 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Right now, 60%, over 60% of, of the uh, fevers and, and illnesses that are felt to be infectious illnesses that show up at, at, at emergency rooms, they don't know what, what, what it's caused. They don't know what the, the microbe is. So could be other tick microbes, could be other respiratory viruses, you know? So, so there's just a lot of stuff out there floating around that we really don't know about. And that makes testing really difficult. So this idea of testing to find the microbe to apply the correct therapy is really um, misleading. Right. And is a tick the only way that we can get these microbes? Uh, no, but there's preferences, right? So uh, when you look at any particular microbe, you know, it's going to specialize in a particular pathway. Um, but they're opportunist. I mean, all of these things are opportunists. They're going to go at any opportunity. But it's like the, the, the tale of two spirochetes, Borrelia and syphilis. Uh, syphilis chose to preferably spread by sexual contact, and it's really good at it. Borrelia, another spirochete, chose to go through ticks. Um, ticks are nature's perfect pathway for transferring microbes from host to host. So that's a really easy way to go. So it specializes in that. A lot of bacteria, a lot of different microbes specialize in that tick pathway because it's really easy. Of course, sexual, con yeah, you know, there are a lot of things that are carried sexually too that we don't know about, that we don't measure. And... Um, so there's just a lot more than meets the eye. And all of these things, you know, so many of them are low-grade pathogens that fly under the radar that we really don't know we pick up. And, and that's the issue, that we have to think differently when we think about something like chronic Lyme disease. Right. And so with antibody testing, most people will probably have a false negative because these are meant to trick the immune system. That's been written in your book quite a few times. So what do you think of bioresonance testing? This is a new type of testing that a lot of practitioners are using for these microbes. Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't think that any testing is very good. I don't use that much testing in general, um, because I think whatever, you know, when you look at this syndrome, it's never one microbe or a few microbes, it's, it's dozens. And I, so our capacity to understand this, I think is, and, and everybody's talking about acute infection, but the people that are sick are chronically sick and people aren't making the differentiation between acute infection and chronic infection. We'll talk about that. But to address your question, um, it is a new form of testing. Um, I haven't used it personally in my office, but what I can tell you is if you do a search on PubMed, which I have done numerous times in different ways to try to find information, I have found zero scientific studies defining the efficacy of bioresonance testing nothing. Right. Um, and, you know, to really say that something is going to work, I think you've got to have a little science behind it. Now, there are different ways to get information, right? So we know that herbs work for uh, Lyme disease, and, you know, and there haven't been that many formal tests. There have been no drug-like tests, you know, of, of double-blind standards and that, that sort of thing. But they're literally tens of thousands of people that have reported benefit. And then there are scientific studies looking at the antimicrobial herbs, uh, the, uh, the antimicrobial properties of the herbs and a lot of them for other information. But I haven't been able to find a shred of science with bioresonance testing. So you need something you, you need for if you're going to do something that specific, you need a standard to compare it to, you know, you've got to, so to define that it works, you have to have some way of knowing that that 
uh, microbe, that bacteria like Borrelia is actually in a person. So you have to have a way of testing to find to know it's there. And then you have to use this new testing method, bioresonance testing, to, do the, to see how accurate it is in actually picking up that known. I have seen no, no science to define that so far. Right. So, so what it is doesn't the mean best... it's not out there. It doesn't mean it's not working. I just haven't seen it. Right. Yeah, I understand that. What is the best way to get diagnosed? Um, you, you know, if you've got all the symptoms of chronic Lyme disease or fibromyalgia, um, yeah, you, it, it's it's very likely that you're carrying Borrelia. But here's the deal. I mean, when I was going through this journey, uh, when I wrote that book, Unlocking Lyme, I sat down and tried to research all the bacteria and viruses that could cause Lyme disease-like symptoms that could be present in the body without causing symptoms, but if reactivated, could cause chronic symptoms that overlapped or were, you know, fit into the Lyme category. I define well over a hundred different varieties of bacteria and viruses, well over a hundred. So what we're testing for is a drop in the bucket. Um, and again, I don't use testing very much. So if someone comes to me and they present with that spectrum of symptoms, then I'm looking at it and going, yeah, you know, they've definitely have, uh, something that's being driven by uh, these stealth microbes or intracellular microbes. And then, and so the value of the herbs is you're covering for a, such a wide spectrum of things. So let's talk about what happens when someone gets an infection. Okay. Okay. Um, I think that can help people understand it better. So you get a tick bite. A tick digs into your skin and bite and, and, and makes that contact across uh, the skin barrier into the bloodstream. So when we look at our defenses of my against microbes, against invasive microbes, we really have four levels of defense. Everybody talks about the immune system, but we actually have four levels of defense. So the first level is barriers. So our most important defense against bacteria and other microbes is their skin, the lining of our lungs, the lining of intestinal tract that keeps bacteria in our gut. Um, those different barriers are really important, but there are a lot of ways across the barriers. We know that we get insect bites all the time. We know that bacteria do cross over from the gut, from the sinuses, from the lungs. Things get through. So when that happens, the bacteria, whether it's Borrelia or anything else that tick may be carrying, enter the bloodstream. And when they enter the bloodstream, the immune system um, is either blindsided or it recognizes them and, and takes charge. Uh, so if you, you know, the problem with Ebola is humans have never been a, exposed to Ebola virus. So when that thing enters the bloodstream, there's nothing to stop it. The immune system has no defenses and it immediately wreaks havoc. 30-second interruption. If you are tired of dealing with all these unnecessary symptoms and you'd like to get to the root causes of your problems, just apply to work with me. I help people like you every single day find answers with functional labs, root cause approaches, and holistic health. I work one-on-one -on -one with USA and Canada and offer an affordable independent program worldwide. If you need help, just click on the apply to work with me link in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. But most things that we're exposed to, we have some immunity to. And that's true of the tick-borne microbes, virtually all of them. So when they enter the immune system, immune cells recognize these things and, and they're on it. So the symptoms that you may or may not feel are the skirmish, that hand-to-hand -hand combat between the immune cells and the microbes. 
So what the microbes are trying to do is course through the bloodstream to get to tissues. And what they want in tissues is to get to cells. Um, so cells offer food, offer protection from the immune system. So all of these things have the capacity to enter cells. Um, it's called, and so a better name for stealth microbes that I'm using more often is intracellular microbes. And that includes different kinds of bacteria, viruses, everything. So it's a race. The bacteria are trying to make it to your tissues, to your brain, to your heart, to your to, to your muscles and joints. The immune system is kind of trying to keep them from getting there. And if the immune system is good at its job and the microbe load isn't too bad, you might not even know that's happening, or you might have like mild flu-like symptoms. And I think that's really common with after a tick bite. People don't get sick that often. Right. But even when the immune system is at its best, even if you take antibiotics, some of those bacteria make it through. Some of those bacteria make it through. So we've been a couple of our defenses. You know, we have, uh, we have our barriers. We have the immune system. Immune system is most important for acute infections and things that are come constantly coming across. So another uh, defense we have is our normal flora. So we have normal flora on our skin and in our gut. You know, the immune system can't really reach into those places. So our normal flora are actually suppressing pathogens. So if you suppress your normal flora with antibiotics or bad diet and you get dysbiosis, then pathogens are able to cross over from the gut into the bloodstream. So you've got all that dynamic that pathogens are trying to cross. And, and it turns out they are. They're trickling across all the time. So even with our normal flora, our immune system, everything, some of these things make it into the bloodstream and make it to our tissues. So our fourth level of defense, this is really important, is our cells. Our cells can defend themselves. They use a process called autophagy, which is part of how cells refresh and, and renew themselves, that they can expel microbes. So if you are healthy and you get a tick bite, and whether you get antibiotics or not, some of these bacteria make it through, they enter your cells. If you're not healthy, then they have a heyday. They start breaking down your cells and using your cells for food. But if you're healthy, that doesn't happen. So two things can happen. And it turns out the second thing happens a lot more than we thought. Bacteria, viruses, other kinds of things, when they invade the cell, the cell can either destroy those things right up front. So again, fourth level of defense is our cells. Or what happens really commonly, though, is the bacteria and viruses are are really, you know, one of their stealthy characteristics is they can become dormant, not alive, but not dead either, capable of being reactivated. And then as it turns out, every tick bite, every time you put something in, in your mouth when you were a kid, every little infection, every respiratory infection that you've had, everything you picked up from someone else, from intimate contact. Every single time that's happened, some microbes have made it through and entered your cells and became dormant. So they're calling it the dormant blood and tissue microbiome. We actually have bacteria of many dozens, hundreds of species of bacteria that live in our bloodstream, in our tissues, in our brain. So that's a new thing. So when we talk about a few things that ticks carry that we can get, it's just such a small percentage of what's actually there. Now, sometimes if, if you're not healthy and you get a tick bite and these things enter your system, if they, get, if they have a situation where your cells are unhealthy, you've had bad health habits, you've been stressed, you've done all kinds of stuff, then it can cause all the stuff that you've had to reactivate. So we have a little bit of evidence of that. Epstein-Barr virus, 
Everybody gets that when they're kids. It becomes dormant in your cells. And that's one of the things that reactivates. So when I look at chronic Lyme disease, I look at it as a reactivation syndrome. And typically people, you know, they have had uh, some kind of stress or, or something in their lives that have affected their health. And when that happens, your, your cells are weakened and these things start to come out in your joints, in your muscles, in your brain, not just the tick-borne microbes, everything you've picked up your whole life, if you can imagine that. And when they start coming out of cells, they, they, they break down those cells and then they enter other cells. So they're emerging and infecting others. Well, at that point, your immune system works against you because it's seeing, oh my God, there's, there are all these microbes coming out in all of our tissues and they start attacking the microbes and attacking our tissues. And that's how autoimmune illness happens. And this is basically a functional model for how all of chronic illness happens. So when you look at chronic Lyme disease, you're looking at a, a model for everything, autoimmune, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, everything. And there are good studies showing up in the scientific literature that are starting to document this. So it's not just chronic Lyme disease. And people who have, have all the symptoms of chronic Lyme and they keep testing negative for the same bacteria that we were testing for, it's still microbial, I promise. So again, I don't get that uptight about testing anymore. I'm looking at not how do we kill all the microbes or how do we kill a microbe, you know, a particular type of microbe. My strategy now is how do we put that back in the box? You know, how do we restore cellular health so cells can work for us? And how do we suppress this microbes in general, not a single microbe? So it's a very different way of looking at chronic Lyme disease. Right. And so you can basically trace back every chronic illness to a microbial issue. They are starting to do that. Yeah, it's 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 slow, but they're, you know, the research over the past five years is really coming out, um, really defining that model. And it's going to change everything of how we think about chronic illness. Um, but it's going to come slow because you know, our whole medical system, everything we do is going to be questioned uh, when this knowledge becomes available. You know, I mean, the types of drug therapies we use um, aren't addressing any of this. And it's it's really going to open up a lot of questions that I think the pharmaceutical and medical industry are going to be very uncomfortable with. So this information is coming. It's the research is going on worldwide, but there are a lot of people that are ignoring it. Right. And I can't wait for that day when things start to really change. So you mentioned this reactivation syndrome. How does mold affect these stealth microbes? Yeah, it's all about cellular health, right? So just assume, just assume that your body, your cells um, contain your cells in your bloodstream, your brain, your heart, your muscles contain dormant microbes. And again, if they're dormant, the only way to test for them is to chop your tissues up. And that's just not practical. So that's been, you know, why it's been so slow in really understanding this. We, we don't necessarily chop people up, especially healthy people, to find out what microbes are inside their cells. But we can do it indirectly. It's like um, I found about half dozen studies where they've looked at blood. And it's, uh, you know, blood's pretty easy to get. We can look at that. And they found and in a series of different studies that, that were done in different places around the world, they found that in every single healthy volunteer, they found hundreds of species of bacteria inside their blood cells that were dormant every single healthy wow. here. So we do have this dormant microbiome. So part of the illness is, you know, when you see someone that's becoming ill, 
the bacteria start breaking down the cells to create food and create food for other microbes and then other microbes can survive on that you know iron is a big important thing for a lot of bacteria to grow so in the blood they break the cells down to release the iron so that's why a lot of people have ferritin and iron issues um, but it's it you know it shifts your environment of your body from uh, an environment that favors cellular health to one that favors microbe growth. So cellular health is central to all of this, absolutely. Um, our body is made of cells. Everything that happens inside of our body is due to the actions of cells, whether that is bones and cartilage uh, being knitted together after an injury. You know, that happens by cells. Your heart beating is cellular. Thyroid hormone pre being produced, that's cells. That's thyroid cells. So we have several hundred different kinds of cells in the body. But that, you know, when you break the body down to its smallest functional unit, it's a living cell. All cells need certain things. All cells need the right nutrients to do their job and generate energy. All cells need a clean environment that's free of toxins. All cells need stress and rest cycles. So we need to, you know, we have to get up off the couch, but then we have to sleep at night so our cells can recover. All cells need good blood flow to deliver nutrients and pull away waste. So when you look at those categories of things, then mycotoxins have the effect of basically poisoning our cells. So mycotoxins, what mycotoxins are, are, are defense mechanisms that molds produce to defend themselves from other molds and bacteria. Um, so they are toxic to other living cells. So when we breathe things in, these things in in high levels, they are basically poisoning our cells. We, we, they weaken our cells. They... Um, they, uh, you know, prevent our, our cells from functioning properly. So it's a factor. And then you load in all the other toxic substances we're exposed to from the environment at large now. And that's like, you know, putting a ball and chain on your cells. It weakens your cells and the cells that have dormant microbes. Man, is that a setup to allow reactivation? So it's not surprising that when you look at someone who has chronic mold exposure, they're having all the symptoms of chronic Lyme disease, right? Whether they have Borrelia or not. Well, it's because the mycotoxins have chronically weakened their cells and the microbes are starting to reactivate whatever they've picked up. Now, you know, I think there's a factor and we're still learning. There's a lot we need to learn about this model. And I think there's no doubt that some people pick up microbes that are more threatening and more concerning than others. You know, there's a lot of interesting research. Um, there's even some suggestions that, you know, some dormant microbes even may play a role that helps our cells function better. So we're learning a lot of things. There's still a whole lot to learn with this model, but it's still, it's a very logical model of what why symptoms are occurring and what what's going on in the body yeah it makes complete sense and why aren't medications the best treatment option for these types of chronic illnesses well are you talking about antibiotics or just medications we use in general just medications in general yeah. for treating symptoms of all sorts and antibiotics right. here's where most medications miss the boat and why herbs are so important. So we're talking about cellular health. Your body is made of cells for everything to happen in your body. So if you feel great, it's because your cells are healthy and they're all functioning well. If you have a symptom, whether it's a neurological symptom, a heart symptom, a joint symptom, it's all related to cellular stress. So when cells are stressed or injured, they release substances that tell the brain something is wrong, you know, so you get enough cells that are injured, like you twist your ankle, um, then all those cells that have been injured are sending a signal to your brain to tell your brain that you've twisted your ankle. So you'll favor that ankle, you'll take some of the weight off, you'll remove the stress. 
But also when cells are injured, they can't do their job as well. So that's part of a symptom that you start to lose that cellular function in your body or that cellular function becomes compromised. So symptoms are a reflection of stressed cells. So what we're doing with drugs is we block that, that connection that the, 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 the cells are telling the brain that something's wrong. Well, we want to cut that out. We don't want to feel discomfort. So we use drugs to do that. And we use drugs to kind of cobble together whatever cellular functions are left to optimize that. So we're kind of just trying to make a bad situation better. But what we're not doing with drugs for chronic illness is we're not affecting the stress factors that are causing the problem. When you look at it, a lot of our drugs for chronic illness are to block inflammation. Um, and you know, if, if I've seen it once, I've seen it a hundred times in medical journals and hearing doctors talk that inflammation is the cause of certain X disease, right? Inflammation is a cause of disease. You hear that a lot. Right. It's wrong. It's not a cause of disease. It is a process of disease. It's a manifestation like a symptom. So that just misdirection or misrepresentation uh, uh, of something is critical because if you define a symptom or define inflammation as a process of disease and all you're doing is blocking the inflammation, you're not addressing any of the causes of inflammation. So what the causes of inflammation are are increased cellular turnover and reactivation of microbes that, you know, basically what's happening is cells are dying off, they're breaking apart, there's debris, there's dead microbes, and all of this is congested around your cells. So it, your cellular spaces become congested, your cells can't breathe, and they can't purge toxins, and they get sick. So inflammation does that. So blocking inflammation does help uh, you know, re help uh, reduce that a little bit, but because it's not addressing the causes, it doesn't ever fix it. People have to keep taking drugs to tamp down the inflammation. Well, inflammation is also part of the healing process. So all of these drugs are blocking healing. So there's no wonder, you know, you know, you see the commercial for the the the, the inflammation inhibitor drug that the person is taking. And then they read this thing of, well, your, your, your risk of all these diseases and cancer and all this is gonna be increased because we're blocking healing. So what the herbs are doing in comparison, and not to say that there's not use for these things, sometimes in acute phases, the drugs can be very important. But what we're doing with the herbs is addressing cellular health. And that's really, really, really important. So the drugs really have no potential to do that. What we're doing with the herbs is we're basically borrowing the defense systems from a plant to protect cells. You know, the plants are producing this spectrum of chemicals to protect the cells against free radicals and toxic substances and radiation, and especially microbes. Every plant is doing that. But different plants in different environments do it slightly differently. So, you know, some plants don't mesh with our biochemistry. Nobody would take uh, uh, poison ivy to get well from something. But a lot of plants do. And we found these plants over thousands of years of human use. So the ones that mesh with our biochemistry, what the herbs are doing are protecting ourselves against free radicals, toxic substances, radiation, all varieties of microbes. So that cell protection is restoring cellular health, restoring the ability of cells to recover from being stressed, which is what healing is. So when you, when you take the stress off, when you, you know, use crutches and don't walk on that bad angle, the cells have the ability to repair and regenerate. That's what healing is. So drugs don't promote healing. Herbs directly promote healing by restoring cellular health, by, by reducing cellular stress.
It's really important. Um, and that's why, you know, herbs don't work so fast, right? We don't get that quick response that we do from drugs. It takes time for them to work, but that's because healing takes time. And, you know, certain cells like nerve cells, it takes a long time. Exactly. And I'm looking at many years of potential. I will be healing, but it will take some time with neurological issues. But me being in the gut health space, I often hear that herbal antimicrobials like oregano, berberine, they can disrupt the normal flora of the gut. What is your take on that? Um, no, it's, it's generally the opposite. And that's what I found over years of taking herbs that my gut just got better and better. I mean, I tried antibiotics in the beginning and almost immediately, you know, within two weeks of taking doxycycline or anything else, my gut would just be a wreck and it didn't matter whether I took probiotics or anything else. Um, taking herbs, I never had that effect. And you have to think about it this way. So an antibiotic is a single agent and, you know, it, and all antibiotics originally kind of came from some, some natural source, either a plant, a bacteria, or a fungus. Um, so, but it's not the whole chemical descent, you know, it's like a fungus. It's producing lots of things to protect itself from other funguses and bacteria, but it's a system. It's hundreds, it's a complex chemical system. So what we did with an antibiotic is we pull one of those chemicals and then we potentiate it. So we make it really potent against certain kinds of bacteria, um, but it's really potent, but it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It kills everything. It kills your normal flora and everything else. When you use an herb, you have a system that is is has a certain amount of intelligence. It's a sophisticated system that spares the normal flora. You know, the plant doesn't want to kill its friendly bacteria in its environment. It just wants to kill pathogens. And this has actually been documented by scientific studies. I found a study when I was writing my latest book that documented this effect that I saw in myself and so many other people that taking herbs actually balances gut flora, skin flora, uh, by suppressing pathogen and allowing the normal flora to flourish. So like I said, you know, that, that one of our defense mechanisms is our normal flora. We want to keep our normal flora healthy. And that's very important that herbs spare your normal flora. Um, my personal opinion is that berberine and berberine containing herbs are one of the better things that I've used to straighten out someone's gut. I use those really frequently. Um, in, in my practice. Um, what happens with oregano is oregano oil is, is just all of your essential oils are just really potent and they can irritate the gut. All right. And that's the difference in an herb and an essential oil. So an herb, think about chemicals the plant is using to protect its cells. And it also contains chemicals that the plant is using to regulate cellular functions. You know, plants have to change from day to night and when the weather changes. So the, the plant has to, uh, to, to, to synchronize all those cellular functions. Um, and it's using chemical messengers that are very much like our hormones. So many of the herbs that we take have balancing effects on our hormones, and it's because of that effect. Um, so herbs are cell protectants that the plant is producing to take care of itself. Essential oils are something different completely. Now, a lot of essential oils do have antimicrobial properties and anti-inflammatory properties, but the plant is producing these oils called terpenoids specifically to ward off insects and bacteria. All right. So it actually, the, the, the essential oil is encased inside a vacuole. It's like a little bubble inside the leaves and stems. So it's separate from the cells and it's toxic. So the cell, you know, walls that off. It doesn't want it. it, it the cells, plant cells exposed to that. So when a creature like a uh, insect comes along and starts chomping away at the leaves, it releases these very toxic substances 
and um, and chases the insect off. So that's the purpose of essential oil. It's very different from the chemicals that you get with an herb, um, but it can be very valuable. So what is toxic to an insect can be beneficial to us. And we've been exposed to these chemicals historically so long that we tend to process them uh, generally pretty well. But you'll always find that essential oils, especially to the GI tract, are going to be much more toxic than uh, than most of your herbal products. Good to know. So you are a fan of essential oils, but they have more specific and stronger purposes. You know, I, I think you have to use essential oils more carefully. But yes, and I have done, I mean, I've tried it all. I, I did some oral protocols um, with, uh, you know, you take a drop, like one of them was a drop of clove, a drop of uh, oregano, a drop of cassia. I used to put a drop of turmeric and you put it in a little capsule and take it. But you have to be really careful. I mean, two weeks of that and you're, it'll really tear your gut apart. Um, right. Strong antimicrobial properties, but it's not nearly as forgiving as herbal therapy. So mostly what I use is herbs. Um, and there are many people that suggest that you really shouldn't be using essential oils orally at all. You do have to be very careful with them. Um, certain ones are stronger than others. You know, uh, clove and cassia, which are really wonderful antimicrobials, can burn your skin, can burn your gut. Um, yeah, you just have to be very, very careful and they can burn your lungs too. So, right. yeah, Re you know, respect them for what they are and what the plant uses them for. They are yeah. toxins to ward off insects. Absolutely. Good to know. Cause that's a, a very common misconception out there or confusing topic for some people. So a couple questions left. In your books, I know you, maybe your thoughts have changed on this, but there was a caption where I think you said something about you prefer herbs over taking multivitamin supplements. Is that still something that you agree with or has your thought changed on that, preferring herbs over vitamins? I think you've got to, you know, it's important, you know, whether you're talking about herbs and essential oils or herbs and drugs or herbs and vitamins, you have to define what's your purpose here? What is this thing actually doing? So when we look at a multivitamin or minerals or uh, things like uh, coenzyme Q10, L-carnitine, vitamin-like substances, I would define all of these things as nutrients. And you hear the word sometimes phytonutrient. I don't think it's it's a word that's used properly. So a nutrient is something that a cell needs to do its job, right? So cells need carbohydrates and fats to generate energy. Cells need um, um, amino acids to build proteins. But for to produce energy, for mitochondria to produce energy and to do the basic work and replace the cell's parts, they're, you know, organic molecules are the parts that cells use to build new parts or do their job. It's like to produce um, uh, thyroid hormone, thyroid cells need iodine as a component of the thyroid hormone. So nutrients are things that cells use to do their, do their job, produce energy, and to replace their internal parts. Um, so all cells need that. You know, we need a steady supply of that. The best place to get those things is from other cells. If you think about it, all of our natural foods are made of cells. What we ate for hundreds of thousands of years was cells. If you look at an apple, a broccoli, a piece of salmon, the things that we define as whole foods are made of whole cells. And each of those cells has all those things. It has amino acids and carbohydrates and fats and all of the nutrients and minerals. And if you eat enough variety of foods, you're going to get 
all of those things, all the nutrients that your cells need to function properly. And you get them released slowly as your cells can need them. So your cells really can't store these things. They have to have them ready demand all the time. So they need to be coming in. Um, now, a lot of people aren't getting that because we're eating not whole foods, but we're eating carbohydrates and in fats that have been extracted from sources like grains. You know, it's it's uh, when you look at flour, you're not talking about whole cells. You're talking about carbohydrates and parts of proteins that have been extracted from a seed and then condensed in a flour. That's what a lot of our food is now. So we're doing a lot of things to our food. So that that important thing of whole foods is very important. Even with a good diet, though, a lot of people, 75% of people struggling with chronic Lyme disease or most other chronic illnesses have gut dysfunction, and they may not be absorbing things like they should. So having that extra uh, source of vitamins and minerals through a good quality multivitamin can give your cells that little bit of extra edge that it needs. Um, if you're using things that it's in a form that's well absorbed, you're taking it a couple of times a day, so it's being distributed, you know, that can give you a little bit of an extra edge. Um, maybe healthy people need to do may need that, especially as we age. But young people eating a really good diet or really anybody eating a great whole food diet with lots of vegetables and other nutrients, eh, not as much. What we're getting from an herb isn't nutrients. Herbs are very poor sources of nutrients. Herbs, what we're getting from herbs is what we call phytochemicals, not phytonutrients, phytochemicals. So again, what we're getting from the herb and what we're getting in really good quality herbal extracts is dense concentrations of this phytochemistry of the plant that has these regulatory functions of balancing hormones, but also protecting our cells. So what we're getting from the herb is cell protectants, not nutrients. So we're talking about apples and oranges here. You right. know, it's, uh, you know, vitamins are nutrients, multivitamins are nutrients, herbs are cell protectants, they're not nutrients. You need both, but here's an interesting way to think about it. When cells are stressed, they have to work harder. When they have to work harder, they tax their mitochondria for energy, they, they wear their parts out faster, and they need a lot higher demand of nutrients because they're working so much harder. So stress cells, high nutrient demand. When you take an herb with all these protectants, you're reducing cellular stress so you're reducing nutrient demand. Cells aren't having to work as hard. They're healthier, they're doing well. Nutrient demand isn't as high. So when you take an herb, even though it doesn't provide nutrients, it reduces the amount of nutrients that a cell needs. So that's, again, you know, if I had a choice of taking herbs or taking a multivitamin, I'm gonna take the protective herbs every single time. Right. And I'm so glad you mentioned that last part because I was going to uh, poke you for that answer right there. It's a really important topic. So last question. And then if we have any closing thoughts, there's a huge, I guess I'll call it a cult who are against plants for specific anti-nutrients, oxalates, lectins. What is your take? And maybe this isn't the right term nutrients, but what is your take on the plant anti-nutrients? Uh, well, you know, all plants do have that. Well, what would be, you know, there, there are various kinds of things that um, block chemicals. Um, and, you know, especially when you look at nuts and seeds, especially you're going to find phytates and other kinds of things. Um, and, and you're going to find some of all of that. But when you look at plants uh, as a whole, um, we all depend on plants. I mean, you know, when you look at the energy for all life on earth, it comes from the sun through plants. Plants take the energy of the sun, build carbohydrates, build nutrients, and then other things eat the plants. And you, you know, you could make a choice just of eating meat, but boy, you're missing out on, I mean, there's so much good in plants 
compared to the minuscule amount of things that might be concerning. And if you're eating a range in your diet, um, but the problem is, I, I, I mean, it speaks for itself. 60% of our population is unhealthy. They've been defined as having some kind of chronic illness, 60%. That's huge. And virtually everyone is eating a high grain and meat diet. And they're sick. And if you look at the longest live healthiest people on earth, and they've done studies, you're probably familiar with the blue zone studies, where they've looked at the people who have the lowest incidence of chronic illness and the the the, the great longest lifespan, they, they have better longevity than anybody else. They're eating more vegetables than anything else. They're eating low amounts of meat. And, you know, and they do a lot of other things that are healthy too, but they're also using herbs and, you know, they don't spend thousands of dollars on labs. They don't basically have a whole lot of medical care. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty big argument. So when you look at population studies, there's just no doubt. I mean, you just can't argue outside that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think animal products are necessary for specific purposes, but if we have a lot of plants in our diet, we get those protective phytochemicals that you mentioned. And the more right. wild they are, I read in your book, the more protective chemicals that they actually have. So whatever they're exposed yeah. to, that gives us the benefit too. So good point. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Rawls. Are there any closing thoughts that you wanted to leave us with? You know, the big thing is just life is so good for me at age 65. There's just, and, and I attribute so much of it to the, to taking herbs every day. Um, I look at my recovery, you know, it, it didn't cost a lot of money. I didn't do a lot of labs. I just was really vigilant about my diet, my health habits, getting my sleep back and taking herbs every day. And I've been doing that same plan. And, you know, I, I just, I can't imagine I could get much healthier than I am right now. And it's, it's all, you know, thinking about it at that cellular level, taking care of your cells, doing the right things to help your cells work and keep those microbes dormant. And yeah, then, you know, it's like, I don't think I've eradicated all the microbes that I've had, but they're right. dormant. They're not bothering me. And that's what counts the very most. It sounds like you're reverse aging. <laughs> I hope to do that as well. I feel like as I get older, I'm getting a little healthier in specific ways. So good sure. news for everyone who's looking to heal. There is hope from what you've said, and it does take some time. So we always need to be mindful of that. It's not going to happen right away. We're in a society where we want immediate gratification and it's just not possible during the healing process. So Thank you so much for all the information. Uh, are you working on any other books, any projects, announcements that you wanted to go over? You know, it's it's you get to this point in life and you you see things differently because your eyes have been opened differently just because of your life experience and you want to share that. So writing books is one way that I'm doing that. I mean, I constantly am doing writing. But um, the big thing for me right now is just figuring out social media and having a bigger presence on social media, because you know, what I need more than anything else is just platforms to give my opinion, of which you just shared one that I really appreciate. Um, but that's a deal. You know, you, you have something like this and you want to share it. So I'm looking at different ways that I can get it out there, different ways that I can share it. And uh, so hopefully you'll be hearing from me a lot. Yeah, I would love that. Absolutely. And I did tag you on Instagram. So people will be Thank exposed you. to your page. Um, so how can people work with you then? Um, I am getting ready to, you know, I've been kind of when time is available, I try to do consults. Um, now, they're not medical consults. I don't write prescriptions or manage any kind of treatment and diagnosis. But it's like a high level of health coaching that I help people understand their situation and help them make good choices. Um, 
And, and so I'm starting to do those again, probably in a week or two. Uh, so I've got that going on with consults coming up. Um, we do have health coaching through our company, Vital Plan, um, just trying to refine the products, make them better, um, you know, and, and getting the word out there that, you know, it, it does require a certain quality of products. And we've really put a lot of effort into creating things that help people along in their journey. So all of those things are really important to me. Awesome. And for the audience, too, I have his two books right here. They were pretty much life-changing. So we have Unlocking Lyme and the Cellular Wellness Solution. Be sure to check those out too. And I have a bunch of other links in the bio to connect with Dr. Rawls. But again, thank you so much for that. I think that's a great closing. We definitely appreciate all the information you've provided. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Hey there. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram at gutexpertriley, on Facebook at The Gut Pharmacist, same spelling as this podcast, on YouTube at The Gut Pharmacist, and my website is holisticriley.podia.com, where you can find information on working with me, my background, and more helpful information to feel empowered in your journey.